Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also choose one thing they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian, writer, actor, musician and poet, Nick Helm. Nick started doing solo stand-up in Edinburgh in 2007 and quickly became a circuit favourite and one of Britain's most loved comics. His first Edinburgh show, Keep Hold of the Gold, was a smash hit and he's kept that up ever since. Nick was nominated for a Royal Television Society Award for his starring role in the critically acclaimed BBC sitcom Uncle and also played the adorable Watto in Channel 4's Loaded, which was later broadcast on AMC in America. He fronted his own food travelogue show, Eat Your Heart Out with Nick Helm on Dave, and he also fronted his own variety show, Nick Helm's Heavy Entertainment on BBC Three. This is all in addition to his memorable appearances in shows such as Eight Out of Ten Cats, Russell Howard's Good News and Celebrity Mastermind. Nick is also a talented writer. His short film, Elephant, which he co-wrote, directed and starred in, was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Short Film and he's currently developing it into a feature film. He also wrote and starred in the BBC short The Killing Machine. Nick has released two successful albums. Nick Helm is fucking amazing, no question about that, and Hot and Heavy, which feature hit songs from his solo shows. So let's discover what Nick Helm would like to preserve in his time capsule. I hope you enjoy it. 
and I am recording now. Oh, yeah, brilliant. You can see me. Great. And I can hear you. And you can hear me? I can, beautifully. Marvellous. Now all we've got to do is think of something to talk about. Right. That's it. Okay. <laughs> I just don't have a negative thing yet, but uh, that'll come to me, I'm sure. Okay, that's great. So um, uh, let's talk about what you're up to at the moment, though. Yes. Well, at the moment, I'm getting ready to do Edinburgh. And is that after a gap? Did you make it last year? No, I didn't do last year. I I knew that some people were going up last year, and uh, all the comedians that I've heard that went up last year said it was absolutely incredible. Um, Mm. But that was because there weren't any audience members. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) what they said was, they said the streets were absolutely empty, and it was sort of like eerie because the festival was on, but you couldn't really tell it was on. And then every time they did a gig, they were just packed out audiences, and it was incredible. Um, So it sounds like, it sounds brilliant, but I'm glad I didn't do it because... um, Yeah. uh, It's not the same, is it? I mean, part of it is that pushing your way through crowds to get to a gig that you're late for. And just always being sort of vaguely damp at some uh, <laughs> somewhere geographically on your body, you're vaguely damp at some point uh, yes. when you're in Edinburgh. <laughs> it's pretty miserable. But also, it was just kind of like I don't know. I've, I, I one year I wasn't doing Edinburgh. One year I was filming. Uh, we filmed the third series of Uncle during. Oh I right, think, yeah. I think it's 2016. I think it mm-hmm. was that that August um, and we'd never filmed in the summer before we normally film in the winter so it was really really nice filming and I had loads of energy and I'd get bored at the weekends <laughs> so I booked in a new material gig in Edinburgh and on the Friday we finished filming I got on a plane we were filming in Croydon so I, I got the train to Gatwick flew to Edinburgh did a gig that night, did a, did an hour of new material on the Saturday and then I flew back on the Sunday and then I was back on filming on Monday. Um, <laughs> that does show energy. And yeah. I, feel, I feel like I, I, I really am desperate to do Edinburgh and then everyone else was going up during the pandemic and I thought, ah, oh, do you know what? You put your time in. You can you can take a you can take a break if you want. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have you've had some great successes at Edinburgh, haven't you? Yeah. So what is it about twelve years, maybe more now since you first went? Um, well, so my first big kind of like year as a stand-up comedian was two thousand and ten, where which was the one where everyone noticed me. But I did my very first Edinburgh in nineteen ninety seven when I was. Um, I was 16 and wow. we did Romeo and Juliet with my school and my teacher was very sort of, somehow she convinced the head teacher to let her take a group of kids up to the Edinburgh Festival. I think we were on about midday and we'd have to fly her in the morning and then we'd do the show and then we'd go home, get changed and then we'd all go out and, you know, sneak off and go and see stand-up, <laughs> stand-up comedy at night and um, and get drunk and stuff. And it was brilliant. And if I hadn't done that, I literally was just like, oh, if I could do this every year for the rest of my life, I'd be very happy. And I've done it almost every year for the rest of my life. That is the best thing, though, isn't it? I think the first time you go. But doing it at midday, fantastic. That means that you're absolutely free for the rest of the day. Oh, yeah. Well, I've always, um, like, even up to later on, I wrote theatre for about six years and took that up to Edinburgh and then it takes such a long time to write a play. And, um, <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me, no. And, uh, and so I'd spend all... The, the writing to performance ratio is all out of whack. 
you spend 90% writing it and then 10% performing it. And with stand-up comedy, it's the other way around, where you kind of like, you think of an idea, and then you go on and you do it, and then people laugh, and then you've got that in your pocket for the rest of your life. You go, right, that's my joke. Um, <laughs> and so I've forgotten the initial question. <laughs> <laughs> the brilliant thing of being free for the rest of the afternoon and being able to oh, get yeah, drunk so, all evening. Yeah. So I've always put myself on at, um, at like around four or five o'clock in the afternoon because you can do your show. Um, you're not really competing with all the other like big names in the evening, which means that you can go and see them as well, you know. And uh, and then you can go out and you can have your evening, uh, and then you can uh, have a hangover the next day, and you can work <laughs> your hangover off, and then you can do your show again. And then it's just cyclical. It happens the same way every day for an entire month. And uh, being bang <laughs> in the afternoon is like it's like perfect for me. Yeah, the last time I went to Edinburgh about. 19, 2019. So, yeah, three years ago, uh, we did a show at three o'clock, uh, which was perfect. But it did mean that I was absolutely hammered every night by nine. <laughs> it was right, hopeless. Yeah. No, but I, I, I do find uh, that you go up to Edinburgh with sort of like the best of in- intentions and you think, oh, I'm going to do it really clean this year. I'm going to get mm. up and I'm going to exercise and I'm going to, you know, not drink alcohol and I'm going to drink kind of uh, green tea and uh, and, I'll j- and I'm just <laughs> going to concentrate on the show. That's what I'm going to do. And by day two, you've fucked it and it's all out the window <laughs> and you're, you're drinking, uh, you know, nonstop from the minute you get off stage to the minute, you know, you, you collapse and then you get up in the morning and it's kind of like the way you start the month tends to be how you just do the month. You get about halfway mm-hmm. through it and then you think if I can just hang on and get through the next month, I promise to God I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to give up alcohol. I'll give up everything. <laughs> I just need to get through this month. <laughs> I find myself telling people the terrible lie of when's your show on? Oh no, that clashes with ours. Yeah. Oh no, what a shame. Yeah. Those are the best conversations when you kind of like, but when it, when it's genuine, where, yeah, you can yeah. see delight in both of your faces, which is like, when are you on? 5.30. Me too. Great. I don't have to come and see you. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. In 2009, I did Edinburgh, and um, I was meant to be doing it with two other comedians, but they dropped out right at the last minute, and so I had to fill an hour. Oh, God. So I just sort of like went through all of my notebooks, and I found like some old poems that I'd written, and I, I, I scraped together an hour, and when the, when the when it started, there wasn't anyone in the audience. There was like maybe two or three people in the audience. Mm. And I always found that those gigs were really fun because, you know, um, everyone knew what the deal was, you know. Yeah. This is, is going to be difficult for everyone. And then you kind of like have like a blitz mentality where everyone's like, right, we're in it together. Let's make this work. <laughs> Come on. We're going to have a great time. Yeah, exactly. I did a show in Auckland in New Zealand once. And there'd been this storm warning, which we didn't really take much notice of. And we drove across the island to Auckland. And when we arrived there, people said, have you been out in your car? He went, yeah. So we've got a show tonight. They said, well, nobody will come. It's a hurricane. It was a huge theatre. I mean, I think it was about 1,200-seater. <laughs> we had eight people. We said, everybody come down to the front row. Yeah, right. That was what I was going to ask, yeah. They all came and sat on the front row, and we had a ball. So it was really good fun. And then, amazingly, about two years later... My wife was giving birth, and this man came in in great white boots and a big coat, carrying forceps, and he walked in and he went, ah, oh, Jesus Christ, mate, I saw you in Auckland. That's incredible. Incredible. That was in London. Oh, wow, right, okay, right. 
Oh, wow. What are the chances of that happening? I <laughs> know. What a small world. I love it when stuff like that happens. Um, yeah. And also, it's kind of like, it is, it is a bit ridiculous to be expected to remember every single audience member that you've ever had. But if you've had, <laughs> if you've had like an interaction with someone, it is surprising like how good, well, in my memory, it would be like, if I've got someone off, off, out of the audience and I've got them on stage, if somebody says, oh, I was at your gig and you got me on, on stage, I'll be like, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and quite often their name. Yeah, well, no. I'm not. <laughs> 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 but that's amazing that you did a show in front of eight people and then they ended up delivering your baby. Yes, not all eight of them. That would have been extraordinary. You meant if they turned up as a team. (laughs) So there we are. All right, so let's find out the five things you'd like to put into a time capsule. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to put into the time capsule will be uh, my mum's prawn lasagna. Prawn lasagna? Yes. So when we grew up, my sister was a pescatarian. She didn't eat meat anymore, and my mum sort of um, worked out uh, okay, right. Well, I'll do a lasagna. Like a good weekday meal would be a, a lasagna, but instead of using beef or vegetables, she used prawns. <laughs> and so we had the, this prawn lasagna. Was it nice? Yeah, it was incredible. Well, I mean, you'd have like prawn uh, linguine, right? Yeah, but bechamel sauce and prawns. Yeah, but you can have you, you can have seafood in a, in a white sauce, can't you? That's very true. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have pasta, but pasta's just in sheets rather than in strips. So um, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically everything that you'd get in a bowl of pasta, I suppose. Only you get <laughs> bechamel sauce and tomato sauce. And, yeah, people have like this weird reaction to it, like, oh, wow, that sounds weird. Um, it was incredible. It was just really – I've got a really nostalgic idea of, of what it was where we'd get, like, a big um, – rectangular baking dish glass baking dish mm. where you could see all of the layers through the dish and uh, we'd cook it and we'd have it like on a on like a wednesday night or a thursday night and then if you know we wouldn't eat it all and then what we'd do or what i would do is the next day i would cut myself a slice and i would microwave it until it was um you know when uh, you microwave pasta to the point where it gets chewy yeah don't know how many microwavable lasagnas you've eaten in your time. Quite a lot. You yeah. microwave them till the edges go chewy. Almost crisp. And yeah, I would find that like, the, the lasagna was delicious on the day that she made it, but it was even better the next day. I'm not saying that she invented the prawn lasagna. I've never heard <laughs> anyone else say that they've ever had a prawn lasagna. And every time I bring it up, people act like it's a weird thing. And so even like now, if it's like my birthday or if I've just... Um, I, re- I remember like in 2001 when I'd written my first Edinburgh show, which was uh, like a collection of like dark plays. Mm. It was like six 10-minute dark stories. And I remember I went up to Edinburgh, I did that. We didn't eat for a week. And uh, we came back down again. And on my way home, we stopped in St Albans and my mum made a prawn lasagna. And it was the happiest I've been. And I remember the first time <laughs> I got nominated in 2011 when I travelled back to St Albans um, on my way home. Yeah. My mum made a prawn lasagna. And so it's like this thing for like special occasions. And I love it. And she's great at it. And she changes the recipe a little bit every so often. But... Um, I would, I would take that with me. I love it. What does your mum do? Oh, well, she's retired now, but she was a, a maths lecturer. Oh, really? Were you brought up in St Albans? Um, I, was, I grew up in uh, Finchley Park until I was about seven or eight, and then we moved to St Albans. Just when it would have become cool. 
Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah well, it's not like, well, I, I moved back. So, ah. um, so now I live in, I, I live kind of like just uh, in Holloway uh, now. I'm like 10 minutes walk from where I was born and where I grew up and everything. I lived in Sotheby Road in Arsenal by the Arsenal Fish Bar. Oh, wow, right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm right next to Arsenal. I mean, I was, I don't, I'm not into football, but if I was into no. football, I'd support Arsenal. Um, because mm. that's that's where I was born, but um, I'm right next to the cinema that my mum used to take us to, and and all that. So we, so they moved us out of London, but I never really felt at home anywhere other than other than North London. Really, you must go and see Harry Hill's new musical. Oh yeah, at the yeah, because it's Steve Brown, isn't it? Steve Brown and yeah. Harry Hill, and they've done a music. Yeah, um, he wrote all the music for the uh, Tony Farino phenomenon, mm. which was Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan did a character that he didn't really do much with in the late 90s. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I've got it on DVD. I think the Tony Farina phenomenon, all of the songs on that show, it's like an hour of songs. They're all incredible. You know, because mm. I obviously, I've, I've gone into writing, I write comedic songs rather than mm. comedy songs, maybe. But, um, like, they nail every single genre on that show. I thought it was brilliant, Yeah, yeah. And they do in the musical of Tony as well. Yeah. But I would really recommend seeing it. And Charlie Charlie Baker, who's playing Tony Blair, is really amazing in it. Yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, everyone involved in it is great, and I'm going, and it's walking distance for me, so it's even Fantastic. Yeah. Well, have a nice uh, prawn lasagna before you go. Um, well, we might, save that. we might save that for Sunday. Lovely. All right, we'll put your mum's prawn lasagna in as your first thing. That's it. That's number one. Oh, good. So you're quite open to just letting anything go in, are you? Absolutely. And I'm also I'm happy to have smells, thoughts, views, gigs. Oh, gigs. Well, like a, like a, like a memory. A memory of a gig, yeah. Maybe one day open it up and do it again. Okay. So, and, and you're waiting for me to say what my next entry is. Well, I'm happy to hear what number two is, yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> Right, well, just for like, I put my mum's prawn lasagna in. So, uh, my dad had uh, has a well, no, he had because he gave it to me um, a Spanish guitar. Mm. It's got these giant frets. And it came in a guitar case, and there was an orange, yellow, kind of fluffy interior to the guitar case, mm. and the guitar has nylon strings and really wide frets. And it, and the frets are good because you don't have to be particularly accurate with where you, where you place them. You can kind of sort of like approximate what the chord shape is and get yeah. get a good sound out of it. And it's the <laughs> guitar that I sort of learned how to play guitar. I'm not very good at guitar. I sort of like went through a burst of kind of like really being into guitar when I was 17, 18, 19. And it mm. took me all the way through university. And then I sort of, um, when I started working with other musicians, I stopped, I stopped kind of like playing, you know. So would piano be your main instrument? Keyboards? No, I mean, I'm terrible, terrible at that. Guitar <laughs> would be my main, but I just, I don't, I don't play it that much. But um, I, can, I can play, I can play guitar enough to write on. I can write a song yeah. uh, and then I'll just sort of like work with musicians and we'll like transpose it to sort of more interesting keys or something like that. But, um, mm. but that guitar is brilliant and he had it all our lives. So when uh, I've got an older sister and when we were young, uh, my dad used to have guitar lessons off of this guy. So when we were living in Finsbury Park, these are like the earliest memories. My dad would play guitar and then the sound of his guitar would go through the house and um, he'd have he had a, 
a music teacher, guitar teacher called Max, and he used to call him Mad Max, <laughs> uh, which I thought was really weird because retrospectively it's weird because my dad has never seen any of the Mad Max films. <laughs> in the early 80s, because they were being made, I think the last one was made in like 1985, they were all like in the video shops and everything like that and, you, and the posters for Mad Max all around London and stuff, I remember them when I was growing up. And so my dad had obviously taken this thing from popular culture and he'd given it as a nickname to his guitar teacher and then years later it's just like he never saw a mad max film so what's that about <laughs> and was max mad i never met him I never d- met him i don't think i ever met him um he was probably a very gentle quiet man never once customized his car and blades coming out of the yeah, wheels or anything never never once did he enter the thunderdome poor old max um <laughs> and so there came a point where um my dad got a new guitar and he you know and my dad's great at guitar and um uh, he gave me the guitar and uh, he customed it so that uh, there was a pickup put in it. So that now it's an electroacoustic. Um, I love playing it because it's easy to play. It's easy on your fingers. You can get a good sound of it really easy. And then it's also got all of this nostalgia, like even the guitar case. And it had a little box with a lid in it where you kept all your picks and your tuners and stuff like that. Yeah. So I <laughs> would take that in, yeah. And does the yellow fluffy lining, does that have the shape of the guitar? Yeah, in the top. The, the strings. In the top, the strings are yeah. sort of like etched into it. And <laughs> yeah. And well, I remember because I used to be so smart. I used to sit in the box and my sister used to drag the box around on the carpet and it would be like <laughs> you're in a little boat. Yeah. Um, it's just everything about it is, is, it reminds me of my dad. It mm. reminds me of, you know, London and growing up and playing with my sister and it just brings back all these memories and and I can play it a bit. Lovely. <laughs> That's a bonus. And is your dad retired now as well? Yeah, my dad's retired, yeah. What did he do? He used to uh, work at the MRC. Very much a London person then. Yeah, well, you, I mean, I do acknowledge the fact that I moved out when I was seven or eight just before I started secondary school or just before I went into like top infants or whatever it was I think it was just sort of like a bit of a weird time to change I think it was alright for my sister because she started secondary school basically as soon as we moved yeah. but for me it was in the middle of a school year and I hadn't I don't know I never really got over it I think I found it quite a jarring like Finsbury Park in the late 80s was a very different place to St Albans was and so it was a bit of a culture shock for me Yes, I did the same thing at eight years old. Moved from Bermondsey, Rotherhive, out to Orpington. For years, people kept challenging me to fights because they knew that I'd come from Bermondsey. And they said that I must be tough. I wasn't at all tough, you know. So I was constantly getting into fights when I was at junior school. Yeah, People saying, just coming and just picking on me and provoking a fight in order to prove that they were tough by beating me up. Beating up the kid from Bermondsey. Great fun. Great fun, yes. Oh. <laughs> Glad we moved. Do you miss school? No. 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 The more I look back on school, the more I'm glad that it finished. Yeah. I, so I, I've got a niece now, and she's two, and she's just started going to nursery school. And I remember being dropped off at school and then being picked up at school and just hating every minute of all of that. And I look at my niece, and I love my niece, and I'm so excited about She's growing up, and she's discovering all these things. But I do not envy 
the fact that she's going to have to go to school at some point and all of that stuff, yeah. And it's weird, it's almost inexplainable, isn't it, the idea, the concept. Well, when you start, dear, you're going to go to school, I take you to school, and then, you know, they come out and you almost expect them to say, well, OK, I've done that now, so what should we do next? Mm. Whereas you're going to say, no, um, you keep doing this now until you're 17. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I just, yeah, I remember school being a horror show, so... Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. There we go, yes. We've always got something to complain about. That's it. (laughs) Lovely. All right. Well, let's take that Spanish guitar and the case and put that in as the second item. Okay. Okay. What's item number three? Okay, it's time to take a short break here, although its length is determined by how many ads they choose to put in this gap, because this, ladies and gentlemen, is the ad break. Hurrah! See you soon-ish. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. And of course, the wonder of podcasts is that that break may have been a different length for each of you. Of course, we'll never know. But we will soon know the other things that Nick Helm would like to put into his time capsule. So life isn't a complete mystery, is it? Item number three is my uh, DVD and Blu-ray collection. Right. And at an extension, my VHS collection, which, <laughs> okay. which has dwindled. My VHS connection lives at my parents' house in St Albans, actually. Uh, so every time I go back, there's a very polite conversation that started with my mum saying, so these videos. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, yeah, I know, they're useless. I've, I do have a VHS player, but it's, uh, I, I need to get a lead for it. Um, but like, we're talking about school and how, how 
terrible I found school. I found school absolutely awful. And I loved the video shop on a Friday night going in. We had a video shop on the Friday night, which was right next to uh, the fish and chip slash Chinese takeaway. <laughs> and so what we'd do is we'd go in, we'd order our Chinese takeaway on the Friday night, and then we'd go into the video shop, and while it, they were getting your food ready, you'd pick a video. Mm, and it'd always be like a Steve Martin film or like a Arnold Schwarzenegger film or something like that when I was older. Yeah. And um, I love films, and I think it was sort of like a bit of escapism for me. Mm. Um and I had this huge VHS video collection, which now I've got down to about 30 videos. And every time I go back to my parents' house, do you know what? I won't put my DVD collection in, although I am a big fan of physical media. <laughs> right. Um, but what I will say is I'll put my video collection in because even though I'm 41 <laughs> uh, and, and it's taking up a shelf in my old room back at home, I suppose what I'll do is I'll put it in storage. I'll do that. I'll get rid of it all. I'll put it in storage. Put it in the time capsule. Oh, I'll put it in the time capsule. I'll put it in the time capsule. But what I'll actually do is put it in big yellow box. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put it in. I'll put. I'll put it in storage and get it out of my, my mum's way because I know <laughs> uh, it annoys me. Well, if she says it every time you go up, it must be slightly bugging yeah. her. Yeah. So of the 30, which ones would you are you really keen on? I mean, all of them. Because they're films that I wouldn't sort of necessarily keep, or they're not necessarily classics. But I remember where I was and what I was doing when I bought them, you know. I've got, like, the, I've got like the original... This is before they were, like, collector's editions. They were just in the shops everywhere. But I've got, like, the original Star Wars trilogy on VHS, mm. which means that... Like before the special editions came in and before they kept making changes yeah. to all of them, they're just the original films on VHS. And I don't even think they're widescreen. So there'd be like big chunky pan and scan kind of versions of it on VHS that are all crackly and everything. Mm. And then I've got like the making of the Star Wars films on VHS. There was a point where I looked at my video collection and I realised I had like 11 Sylvester Stallone films on video. <laughs> and I hadn't ever considered myself a fan. No. And then I was like oh, I guess I'm a fan of Sylvester Stallone because I have, like, 11... I don't have 11 anymore, <laughs> but I've got, like, weird ones like um, like Lock Up and Escape to Victory on, oh, on VHS. Great film, Escape to Victory. Escape to Victory is fantastic, right? Yeah, Michael Caine, genius. Yeah. Fantastic film. Uh, Michael Caine and Pele. Pele, what a weird thing, and, uh, and a couple of old Man City players. Yeah, and, and Sylvester Stallone in goal. <laughs> uh, and it's, Trying uh, to look like a goalkeeper. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um I think that, I think what my mum can't understand uh, is that it's not that I'm going to watch these films. No. It's what the films it's it, it's like having a scrapbook or it's like it's like having trinkets. Yeah. But I have that I have that as well. But it's <laughs> um it's it's like kind of like um a whole shelf of all of these VHSs that every time you look at them you kind of like takes you back to your childhood. Yeah, it? yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is weird, because it's got stuff like Basic Instinct up there as well. So. <laughs> well, a certain part of your childhood then, yeah. A certain part of my childhood, Yes. Yeah. So was that an escape for you then? I think so. It, it was that, that and TV comedy. I used to be a really big Red Dwarf fan. Mm. So I think Red Dwarf would come out, as, the, new, the new episodes would come out on a Thursday night when it was on. I think BBC Two used to do like a Thursday night comedy night. Yeah. And so I'd watch Red Dwarf and I'd tape Red Dwarf and then I'd watch it in the morning before I went to school. <laughs> 
and then I'd watch it when I got in from school the next day. I'd just like rewatch that mm. week's episodes over and over again until the next one. And so it was like, yeah, comedy. And then I, I still have a thing about Sunday nights where I used to just dread Monday so much that Sundays were like complete write-offs and the later it got on a Sunday night, the worse it would get. And I would find that watching films would sort of like calm me down. Yeah, particularly if there was homework you hadn't done. Yeah, and how, and how, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll get up really early on Monday morning. Mm. I'll get up at five o'clock in the morning on Monday and I'll do all my homework then. Ah, it's a bit cruel, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just... go to school all week and then at the weekend you give them an assignment to do. I think that's me. I know. So how then did you find yourself in a production of Romeo and Juliet if you were having such a miserable time? Is that, was that something that suddenly you found something new there? Yeah, it was, it was, and it was about that time in um, my life. So I was being in year 11, so I was 16 years old, just about, um, I had, I just sort of like, when I moved to secondary school, it's sort of like, I found it difficult making friends and I was very sort of, um, uh, I was very quiet and, um, and I think a bit of an easy target, and I was overweight, and yeah, people just, I went to quite a sporty school, and I was terrible at PE, mm. and um, and sport, and all of that stuff, and I just didn't ever really feel like I fit in, or I belonged, I did have friends, it's not that I didn't have any friends, no. so, it, 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 so I'm not like, I'm not like, misremembering and writing people out of history. There were some people that were lovely. Yeah. And then when I got to about year 11, I suddenly started sort of, um, I was always interested in drama and quite good at drama, although I had a terrible memory. But then I've, I, I'm, and I did some school plays, I think. And I had one school play where I did Alice in Wonderland and I had a big monologue and I couldn't remember it. So they cut the monologue. And it really stung. And I was like, oh, no. And I didn't do the play the next year, which was The Crucible, because I couldn't get the accent right in the rehearsal. Uh. And so I just didn't do it. And then the next year, the teacher basically said, if you audition for Romeo and Juliet, you know, you will get a good part. And I was like, um, I don't think I'm going to do Romeo and Juliet. I thought I was sort of like, I'm through with drama. <laughs> and then I got the part of the prince. And I got on stage and I shouted at everyone. And then it was like, oh, I'll do that for a living. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like the prince, is, the prince is like a really good part without being kind of like particularly strenuous. You have a big speech at the beginning where you kind of like come out and you go, rebellious subjects, enemies to peace, profaners of this navy of stainless steel, etc. And then you break up the fight and then at the end of kind of like uh well, just before the interval, if you were gonna have one, you'd come back in again and you'd be like, oh no, these kids have been up to no good. And then uh and then at the end you come out and then you have like for never was a story of more woe than that of Juliet and her Romeo. So you get like some big lines. Yeah. But you don't have to do any of the really heavy lifting. And the last line. And the last line. I think if you say the last line of a play, you can pretend that you're the star of it. Yes. Well, we did have a, like, a large chorus of people, and we, they all said the last line of the play. Oh. But we all knew whose line it was, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, uh, just, they're backing you up. It's like having a band behind yeah. you. You're, you're still the lead singer. It was exactly... Yeah. You know what? It was exactly like that. <laughs> That's what it was. They should have changed their name to Prince. That's what they should have called yeah. it. Yeah. Well, let's put that in as your third item. So um, we've got two items to go, Nick, which means that one of them is yes. one, one more that you want to keep and one is one that you want to put in there because you'd like to forget it. Okay, my next one to keep is uh, I'm going to put in Pepsi Max Cherry 
if I'm allowed to. Pepsi Max is my grandson's favourite drink in the world, all the oh, world. Loves yeah, it. Yeah, I, I would say Pepsi Max is a great drink. Pepsi Max cherry has the cherry on top. Um, <laughs> I think it's delicious. Um, I used to love cherry Coke when I was when I was a kid, uh, which obviously has just got all sugar in it. Yeah. And now it's way too sweet for me. But I gave up alcohol. I don't know for how long for. Um, uh, but um, I was going through. Uh, well, I've always sort of like dealt with, struggled with uh, depression. And during lockdown, I decided to sort of like um, try and get to the bottom of it all. And one of the things that I've never really wanted to do was sort of, let's just, because everyone says alcohol is a depressant. And one of the things was, oh, I'll do anything to sort of get over my depression. I'll go to therapy. I'll go and see my GP. I'll get antidepressants. I'll sort of uh, go to the gym. I'll do this, this, you know, I'll do anything, you know, I'll talk about it with my friends and my family. I'll do all the things you meant to do. The one thing I didn't want to do was give up alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do you know what? You've tried everything else. Just give this a go. And so I gave up um, drinking at the beginning of last year and I just basically exchanged it for Pepsi Max Cherry. And it just <laughs> turns out that I've got an incredibly addictive personality and now I just drink Pepsi Max Cherry all the time and I love it. And did it help with the depression? No. <laughs> no. Um, uh, I, maybe I'm a little bit less foggy, but uh, the depression is... Uh, I, I've, I've talked to my GP and I've got a really great therapist and um, I'm on some brilliant antidepressants at the moment. I shopped around. I tried one set of antidepressants. I tried another set of antidepressants uh, over the last, like, four years. And now mm. I'm on a different set of antidepressants. And these seem to be the ones that are, work for me. And I'm very happy with them. And now, uh, and now I take those antidepressants and I drink Pepsi Max Cherry. And the world is perfect. And the world is absolutely, absolutely perfect. As everyone will uh, learn uh, in my uh, in my Edinburgh show. Ah, um, there we are. Uh, no, I t <laughs> it's, it's not all perfect. But I love the fact that you can work out through your act some of these annoyances. Yeah, and... it's cathartic, you know. Mm. It's fun to sort of like explore it in a safe space and also and to go on stage and, and talk about how you're feeling. And I always feel like... The more specific, as a performer, the more specific I am about myself, the more people can relate to it. Yeah. And the more I try and sort of pander to an audience and sort of second guess and think, oh, maybe they'll like this, mm -hmm. uh, the less successful that thing is. Yes. Well, one's a genuine commentary on your life. Yeah. And the other is something you're making up. And also, it's good for other people to hear people talk about it because it starts off conversations, you know, uh, on the way home. You know, people come and see your show, you talk about depression and mental health, mm. and uh, on the way home, people say, oh, do you know what, that reminds me of something that I've been feeling, and I haven't been able to put it into words before, and then that it enables people to get the first steps towards helping themselves. Yes. And I think that's important as well. And you never know within whom and when it's going to affect people, do you? I mean, it can Absolutely. be extraordinarily surprising. Absolutely. And it can be like people... People come and see you and there's always been something wrong with them, but they've never been able to put their finger on it. Yeah. And then they'll come and see a show, and it might not be my show, might be anyone's show, but they go and see a show or they go and see something, a piece of art, a film, uh, they hear a song and they go, oh, that's nailed what that is. Mm. And it uh, encourages people to have a conversation. And so as part of a collection of artists, you know, I, I, I feel like 
one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing, one of the reasons I'm put on the earth is to make people laugh and to help people in some way. Mm. Brilliant. Well, I think there are more people suffering from, certainly from depression, than know they are. There are lots of people who, are, who just aren't aware that they're suffering from depression. They just think things are bad. Yeah. I mean, uh, but also, I mean, I hadn't necessarily intended to talk about this when I suggested Pepsi Match Cherry. So this is taking a bit of a... This is taking a bit of a sideways step. But you get used to it. You get used to feeling like shit. And you think, oh, this is what, this is what my base level is. I feel like shit all the time. Mm. And actually, you, and you become you become accustomed to it and you go right well then that's that's that and that's must be how everyone feels right yeah um and then i i started these new uh, pills uh, that my doctor put me on and all of a sudden it was like night and day and it was just like oh hang on a minute <laughs> oh it turns out it turns out I've been suffering not just from depression but like horrific anxiety as well right and when you take away the anxiety you know, the depression is slightly easier to deal with mm. because you're not crippled with this uh, anxiety on top of that. So, you know, there's different combinations of awful things that can be affecting you at the same time and just generally lowering your expectations on how good you can feel. It like lowers your expectations on how good you could potentially feel. Yeah. And you just get used to the fact that you're just like, you, you feel shit on a daily basis. And so just to have something that gets you out of that mindset or that track of thinking mm. uh, is incredible. You know? What a great realisation, though. I saw a little thing on, yeah. on Twitter the other day of, uh, of a little child having their first pair of glasses put on. And this child obviously had got used to the world being blurred. And the child's face just, <gasps> just lit up. It was amazing. Yeah. And I, yeah. I always think that discovering that the world isn't the way you think it is is that sort of revelation? It can be. Yeah, yeah. I th it's exactly like that. It's it's things becoming clearer, or it's like a constant, you know, like a it's a constant puzzle. Um, our own one's own mental health is kind of like it's a it's a puzzle where you're constantly trying to solve it. Or or I am. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to work out, you know what the best quality of life I can earn for myself, gain for myself. It takes a lot of work of like talking to the amount of strangers I had to talk to in order to get to the point where I was getting a therapist in order to get to the point where I was getting the medication that I needed. Mm. You know, um, it's kind of like you have to go through like a load of hoops and um, it's sometimes humiliating and embarrassing. Like meeting someone for the very first time and then telling them you're, your deepest, darkest fears and um, and thoughts because you're struggling so much. But all of that has been worth it to get to the point where I'm feeling a little bit clearer. And I think that it's just this puzzle that I just want to solve, really, mm. on what's wrong with me. <laughs> um, Part of it, I suppose, is people tend to try and find who's to blame, whose fault is it. Mm. And it, it isn't necessarily anybody's fault. Uh, particularly not your own fault. No, and also, you know, how you see something and how other people see something, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't always match up. And it's I don't think there's any real benefit in blaming people. I think the best thing that you can do is you can sort of like draw a line under stuff, uh, forgive people and sort of like try and move on. Mm. Um, but I think that, you know, if, if I'm solving 
what's wrong with me and other people are solving trying to solve what's wrong with them I think getting on stage and talking about it and um and just being another voice out there that's trying to help people you know you're throwing out kind of life jackets mm. and and people can grab them when they need them <laughs> Brilliant. and I just I just love I love I love being a comedian if that's all it is then that's great mm. um I don't I don't think that comedy has to do anything more than make people laugh and give people give people a break from what they're going through just by the, by doing that I think that that's enough yeah but I think that um on top of that I I just want to be like a helpful person mm. and let everybody have some cherry pepsi max obviously yeah everyone's and uh, pepsi max cherry all round yeah yeah. At my at my place, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, there's an eternal supply of it in the time capsule for you. Lovely, chilled, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the final thing, the thing you want to get rid of. Thing that I want to get rid of. I mean, it could be your depression. Well, that's the thing. It would be. I don't. That's the thing. I. I think. Not, not that I want to keep banging on about it, but I think with the depression, it's just kind of like, it's given me a lot as well. Mm. Like, it's given me sort of like a perspective on who I am and it's given me like an outlook. And I definitely, especially in the early days, in the early days, like when I was a teenager at school, I used to write. So I used to be in a band and then I used to write theatre and then I used to do all these other things. And eventually, when I was in my mid to late 20s, I started doing stand-up comedy and I was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. Mm. But um, I definitely, when I was struggling with depression and um, if I was going through a breakup or I was going through a personal struggle or something like that, I would write about it and I would turn it into art. And that would help me process it. I think later on in life, now that I'm a bit older, and actually just sort of like having to deal with depression on a daily basis is just a massive ball ache. Yeah, I I would kind of like to get rid of it, but and I and I also don't believe that you have to suffer just to create art. You can kind of, and I'm talking about theatre as well as comedy. I'm not I'm not yeah. being a complete pretentious wanker here, but um, <laughs> I'm just trying to sort of like as an umbrella for all of the ways that you write. You know, I write music and and poetry and comedy and theatre and TV and I've I've written lots of stuff. So all of that I'm bracketing under art. And you can if you can express yourself and get rid of your depression or or explain your depression to yourself and to other people that way, then that's great. But I, if you got rid of it, then it would. I don't know what I would do. But maybe if I was happy, I wouldn't need my creative outlet. Mm. And. Oh, that's and interesting. Then, I wonder, though, because you'd still have the memory of it. It just wouldn't be debilitating, as it were. I mean, if you say you spend a lot of time each day trying to deal with this thing, whereas, in fact, you could spend that time creating. Yes. But I'm now suddenly just looking around my room and seeing what else I could get rid of. <laughs> oh, I've got this collection of bells right here. I know those bells well, yes. I think I've got exactly the same thing. We're born for my grandkids. Yeah, I thought I would um I thought I would get a lot out of them, but I've I've never used them. And they just sit on this shelf and every time you sit on that sofa they all fall down and they uh, and they ring. So I'd either get rid of uh my depression without knowing what the ramifications on my career would be. No. Or I'd get rid of these bells. Yes. Because they make a bit of a noise whenever I sit down. <laughs> That's a bit like 
the three presidents or the three prime ministers that were asked what they wanted for Christmas. And the first one said, I'd like world peace. And the other one said, I'd like an end to poverty. And the third one said, I'd like a new pair of slippers. <laughs> but I, I tell you what, I'm happy to put both of them in there. And then if you change your mind, if you find that I need my depression back, I need it, then you can have it back. Oh, well, I, do you know what? I, now that you've put it like that, I don't think I do want it back. I think you're all right with it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Nick, it's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. It wasn't too miserable, was it? It, was all it right. wasn't miserable. No, it was funny. It's always useful for someone to talk about things like depression, I think. I think that people ought to hear about it. Yeah. And I always think it's interesting that people who everybody knows to be so funny yeah. can show that, that actually that doesn't necessarily come out of just having sunshine and flowers in their life. Yes, good. Well, I'm glad. And um, and I'd also say, um, when I was growing up, we used to watch uh, KYTV. And, oh, really? Um, it's honestly, I, I, it, I, I bring it up in conversation all the time. Oh. KYTV was like this huge, huge part of me and my family always used to watch it. And, uh, and it was brilliant. Oh, so lovely. it's really lovely to meet you. I treasure it because it's friends, you know. Yeah. And it was a very happy time. So thank you. That's really nice. No, I loved it. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Nick Helm. If, like Nick, you suffer from depression, then there are links to people who can help you next to this episode. Thank you very much for listening, downloading, or subscribing to this podcast. And if you fancy rating it or even reviewing it, then that would be great. You can also follow me and My Time Capsule on social media, and you can listen to the theme tune composed and performed by Pass the Peas Music anytime you want on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production for Acast and was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to the World Yodeling Championships. Have you not been? It's great fun. There's yodelling everywhere. It's brilliant. I mean, even the stewards yodel. The man at the ticket office spent all day shouting, Please form an orderly, 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 orderly queue. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.